0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Are you happy? Could you be happier? Gretchen Rubin was already pretty happy when she asked herself these very questions. In search of the answers, she started her own pursuit of happiness which eventually became a New York Times bestseller titled The Happiness Project. She has now written a second book called Happier at Home. Knowledge at Wharton recently spoke with Reuben about why happy people work more hours each week, how to make and keep happiness resolutions, and how to ward
1: off the three happiness leeches.
0: Gretchen, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: As part of the happiness project that led to your book of the same name, you spent 12 months exploring your own happiness. What made you decide to embark on that adventure? Well,
1: it was this very inconspicuous moment of my life. I was stuck on a city bus in the pouring rain, and I didn't have anything to distract myself with. And I looked out the window and thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or how I could be happier. And in a flash, I thought, I should have a happiness project. And I saw I was going to have rules and charts and lists. I went out to the library the next day and got this huge stack of book about happiness and started researching. I wanted to find out what are the things that everybody said you should do to be happier. And if I tried them, could I actually make myself happier? And that's how I got the idea to do the happiness project
0: how did you deal with skepticism about the project from others, um, from your husband to people at cocktail parties?
1: Well, it's funny, I got a lot of pushback. Um, Some people argued that I was so ordinary and boring that no one would be interested in what I had to say. Other people argued that I was so idiosyncratic that no one would ever be able to identify with me. Um, Some people denied that happiness exists at all. Um, My husband was you you know, was bracing himself for what he could tell was going to be this giant uh, all-consuming project. He's sort of a martyr to happiness I would say. Um, But it was actually very helpful because whenever people would argue against me it really helped me clarify what I thought. Why did I think it was important to work on happiness? Or why did I think that happiness even existed? Or why did I think that what I experienced in trying to be happier would be helpful to anyone else. Why did I think that that anyone else would be interested in the kind of things that I undertook for my own happiness project? So it was actually very helpful. Although I did often respond with a lot of belligerence um, to hear those, to get that opposition.
0: And you were pretty happy to start with. Uh, Was it worthwhile to make yourself even happier?
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that, that is one of the reasons that a lot of people identify with me, because most people say that they're pretty happy or very happy, all around the world most people say that. And I was pretty happy when I started. I was struck by how possible it was, even for someone who was pretty happy, to make myself happier by just doing very ordinary, manageable, simple things that didn't take a lot of time, energy or money. Um, There was really a lot of low-hanging fruit, things that once I thought about it, I could do pretty easily that added a lot to my happiness. Um, Just things like starting a children's literature reading group or going to bed on time. Um, Very small things ended up having a very powerful effect.
0: Your sister actually teased you that you're approaching the question of happiness in such a dogged systematic way. What was your approach?
1: So what I did is I divided the elements of happiness that I felt like I needed to work on for my happiness project into into twelve, into eleven categories. And, um, and these eleven elements, things like friendship, marriage, parenthood, uh, leisure, um, uh, spirituality, and then and, gave, and, did each, and spent a month focusing on each one. So I started in January, went to December, and each month I would uh, turn my attention to this new element. And I always had, you know, three, four, five very concrete resolutions that I was going to follow that I thought would help me achieve more happiness in that element. So, for example, I started with energy because I thought, well, if I have more energy, everything else will be easier. And so, For energy, I focused on things like sleeping, getting exercise, getting rid of clutter, because it turns out that clutter and nagging tasks really drain your energy. Um, And then each month I would add a new set of resolutions. So by the end of the year, I was following all the resolutions all the time. And it was great, it really did add a lot to my happiness. But it was surprisingly difficult to break it down into those elements, it was it's a very productive thing to, to try to do because happiness can seem all tangled together it's very abstract everything's interlocked with everything else and by teasing it apart like that I think it really clarified my thinking
0: in March you looked at um, aiming higher in your work you reported that happy people work more hours each week and they work more in their free time too I think that may seem like a paradox to some uh, how can that be?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons people are happy is if they like their work. And so if you like your work, you're more inclined to work on it. Um, And I always think that a great sign of a person who's happy at work is talking shop. And people who love their work love to talk shop, and and a lot of times people think that that's a negative that oh you should you know you shouldn't be talking shop all the time, but the desire to talk shop shows that you're really you're really very satisfied and you're really still engaged, and even in your free time you want to talk about it, and that's one of the things when I switched from law to writing, when I was in law I never wanted to talk shop, and now I'm in writing I want to talk shop all the time. It's my favorite subject to talk about writing or anything related to writing or publishing or books. Um, And so I think happy people bring that enthusiasm with them. And also, you know, when we're unhappy, it's very easy to become self-focused. You're thinking, you become isolated and defensive and you're preoccupied with your own problems because you're unhappy. And when you're happy, you can turn outward. You have a more, more emotional wherewithal to think about other things. So I think happy people naturally find it easier to focus on things outside themselves, like work or like helping other people. Happy people are also more altruistic. They volunteer more time and give away more money and part of that is because they feel like they have the reserves so that they can afford to turn outward and to think about other people and other people's problems. So tell us a little bit about how you
0: made those resolutions and, and how you um, went through the process of, of sticking to them or even seeing if they, validating them, I guess, and finding out, are, are, were those the right resolutions to
1: make? Well, um, to, to do my resolutions, I was very inspired by Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the patron saints of a happiness project because he was, you know, this extraordinarily productive genius um, and he had this, this chart that he did with these 13 virtues that he wanted to cultivate and they're very founding fathery kind of virtues like temperance and frugality and, um, and so he would write it down and every day he would check off whether he had observed that virtue or not. So I thought that seemed like a good, a good system. I wanted some way to hold myself accountable and also to keep myself reminding myself of what my resolutions were. So I have a, a resolutions chart and I write down all my resolutions and every day at night I check off whether or not I observed that resolution. And then sometimes there's not an occasion for a resolution to be kept, so then I just leave it blank, like no gossip. Maybe I didn't have a, an occasion to gossip, so it wasn't that I gossiped or didn't gossip, I just, well, you know, spent the day alone or whatever. Um, and, and so, and this is a, a very, I found this was a really helpful system First of all, because it held myself accountable and I could see whether I was making progress. And if I was consistently not making progress, then I would know it wasn't working. It also kept them uppermost in my mind. Because sometimes with a resolution, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, you make a New Year's resolution or whatever, and then you just sort of forget about it. you know, And every once in a while you're like, oh, yeah, I was going to try to go to that yoga class, but you forget. So this kept them very awake, awake in my mind. And also, it... it it helped me reward myself. Because I think part of when you do something right, you wanna feel like you're giving yourself a gold star. And I'm a total junkie for gold stars. And so feeling like, oh, I am really making progress. I really am holding myself accountable. And I'm making that kind of, I'm having that, that making that kind of forward progress is very uh, reinforcing. And so those are really helpful things about the resolution charts.
0: In your next book, Happier at Home, you look at how to make a home a happier place. What made you embark on this particular happiness project?
1: Well, again, like with all my books, there's sort of this crazy moment of epiphany when a lightning bolt comes out of the out of the sky and hits me on the head. And this, I mean, I can say this for all of my books, um, it's happened. And this time, I was standing in my own kitchen, unloading the dishwasher, and my husband was in the next room with watching golf on television, and my daughters were in there playing restaurant, and I was hit by a wave of homesickness, this intense wave of homesickness, like I felt the way I did when I went away to summer camp for the first time, which was such a puzzling feeling because why was I feeling homesick if I was just standing in the middle of my own kitchen? And I realized it was almost as if I had flashed forward 30 years and from the future was looking back, with yearning at what I have right now, right here. And that got me to focus for the first time on home. Because with the Happiness Project, I'd been doing all this research and writing and I just, you know, divided my happiness into these elements. But then I had never focused on this idea of home. And the minute I, I focused on it because of this feeling of homesickness, I became overwhelmed with with thinking, well, this is really the foundation. For me, and I think for so many people, so many of the essential elements of happiness come together in home, and, if I, and I really wanted to go deeper into this area. and understand it better like what is what is wrapped up in our idea of home and because people you could be single you could be married you could be young you could be old you could be in so many different life circumstances but this is something that is practically universal is this idea of home and how could you how could you be happier at home um Because there's this, I'm a big Laura Ingalls Wilder fan. I love children's literature, and there's this wonderful line in one of the books where Carrie, Carrie doesn't want to go home because she's in trouble, and Laura's in trouble, and the writer observes, "There is no happiness anywhere for someone who dreads to go home." And I thought, well, how can I make my home as happy as it can be? And and so it was just this delightful process of thinking, how can I make my experience of home happier?
0: You know that there are many happiness paradoxes. One, for example, is accomplish more by working less, yes. or being very accessible sometimes makes it harder to connect with people. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how you you came to one or two of these um, paradoxes? You,
1: you know, I love aphorisms. Um, I'm I love like the great essayists of the past where everybody could say something very concisely. So I'm always uh, and 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 paradox paradoxes particularly I think really the the unpredictability of them helps people think and and makes them more fun to try to puzzle through. And one of my favorite ones, and this is something that I can get away with because I'm not a scientist, a scientist could never use this paradox, is um, happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. And, of course, the scientists couldn't say that because how could happiness not make you feel happy? How can subjective well-being not make you feel subjectively well-being? Um, but, but for someone like me, I can say that because I think we've all had the experience where we do something that we know makes us happy, but at the same time doesn't make us happy. For instance, I am a person who is very afraid to drive. I grew up driving because I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and I've driven many times in my life. Um, but now I live in New York City, and I could basically quit driving. And For many years I basically didn't drive and it eventually started to weigh on my mind and I started feeling like I'm really becoming very afraid to drive, I'm not driving and it's making me feel bad and feel constrained and so I took driving lessons to make myself feel more confident and now I drive once a week and I do not like driving, I don't look forward to it. I'm fine once I'm driving but I really do not look forward to it. So in a way driving doesn't make me happy but on the other hand driving does make me happy.
0: And so that makes me think about, when we're talking about sort of feeling happiness or not, you identify three happiness leeches. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell tell us about those.
1: Yes, well, the three happiness leeches are the grouches, the slackers, and the jerks. So the grouches are the people that are persistently negative, that always see the dark side, uh, that that, um, are pessimistic, um, and I think that's the most common kind of happiness leech. Then there are the slackers. The slackers are the people that just don't pull their weight. And they make people unhappy because people feel like it's not fair, or you know they can't get their own work done because somebody else is saying, can you give me a hand? Can I have just a minute? Can you answer just one more question? And those are the slackers. The worst, the grouches are more common, but I think more destructive to happiness is the jerk. And the jerk is the people, those are the people who are undermining who take credit for other people's work who are backstabbing who are cruel who um, gossip in an unkind way who um, tease in a mean way uh, and these are the people that really spread intense unhappiness um, and so uh, it's kind of helpful to, to to have these categories in mind because you can say well someone when I'm around somebody I seem to feel unhappy sometimes you don't even really understand why and when you say to yourself okay grouch slacker or jerk then kind of clarifies the situation. Um,
0: how, how would you recommend that others start their own happiness projects?
1: There's no wrong way to do a happiness project. I think the, the thing to do if people want to start their own happiness project is to pick a few things but they need to be concrete and manageable and by concrete um, something that you can actually measure and that you know whether you've done it or not. So sometimes people will, will make a resolution like I want to get more fun out of life or I want to have more quality time with my family. Well, I want to be more optimistic. I mean, those are very abstract. It's hard to know if you're getting more fun out of life. It's hard to know if you're having more quality time with your family. Like, what does that mean day to day? How do you measure it? So think to yourself, like, What would it mean if I got more fun out of life? If I got more fun out of life, I would go to the park once a week with my dog and throw a frisbee, or I would sign up for a painting class, or I would read for fun for an hour every day after work, you know, think, what would give you more fun out of life and then actually in a a measurable way that you can see on your schedule and check off a box whether you did it or not. Same thing with quality time with your family. One thing we just started doing in our family which is so fun is we have game time which is every Saturday afternoon we play games for an hour and drink cocoa and you know it's a very simple thing my seven-year-old is the complete enforcer and marches around the house until we all have game time um, but, it's, but it's really nice and it's like I know that I'm gonna have an hour sitting and playing a board game with my family and for me that's a, that's a kind of quality time so when it's very measurable like that it's easier to stick to it. Um, I especially think it's helpful to start with your body because that may sound very basic but so many people are chronically sleep deprived, and so many people just don't get any exercise, and when you don't get any exercise, you don't get enough sleep, it's hard to just have the energy to get through life. You feel irritable, you feel exhausted, you feel indecisive, you get sick more easily. So if you're thinking like, where should I start? I don't know where to start. Going to sleep on time, And getting a 15- or 20-minute walk-in, at least, even if you can't do anything more, is a great place to start. And from beyond that, whatever it is you want to work on in your life, make it concrete and manageable.
0: That's wonderful advice. Thanks so much,
1: Gretchen. Thank you.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.